Chasing Lights Chapter 10 How Long Before Someone Belongs in Alaska now, human beings can adapt to just about anything, even dark, cold, danger. But adapting takes time, and it rarely happens in any predictable way. It's surprising when someone turns around and realizes that all that strange and frightening stuff is now normal. It isn't easy to see, though. Normality creeps up even as one complains about things being different from the way they were. In February of 1976, we visited my Swedish grandparents, Mormor and Mormorfar. Now, when Mormorfar retired, they moved to the island of Mallorca off the coast of Spain in the Mediterranean. And as exotic as that may sound to North Americans, my mother explained to me that Mallorca was much like Florida for Europeans. And she was right. Getting there from Alaska at a time when American commercial planes were barred from Soviet Union's airspace was challenging, but not impossible. Instead of going west over Asia or east over the United States, we went north over the pole to London. Alaska was a popular stopover for flights from Japan and Korea as well, and our flight had more Asian passengers than Alaskan. At that time, people still dressed up a bit to get on the plane. So instead of pajamas or sweatsuits, as people wear now, when taking a long flight, I remember wearing an itchy wool sweater over an Oxford shirt and leather shoes. We kept looking out the window, hoping to see the North Pole. And all we saw was darkness. We were on a Boeing 747. There was a staircase that went up to the first-class lounge. A staircase on a plane. How crazy is that? We were the only kids on the flight, and the stewardesses arranged for us to have a tour and meet the pilots in their cockpit. The 747 first flew in 1969, so it was still a very new and exciting plane. It was so wide. And as we flew, it barely felt like we were moving. Compared to other planes at the time, it felt like an ocean liner. It's hard to believe, but the 747 has been in continuous production for 54 years, and it's due to stop in 2022. As someone who's flown throughout those 54 years, I will miss them when they are gone. On the plane with us was the Japanese biathlon team traveling to Innsbruck, Austria for the Winter Olympics. Now, even though we all skied, we had no idea what biathlon was. Based on Norwegian military drills in the 19th century, biathlon is a cross-country ski race with guns. And after sprinting through the woods on skis at certain points throughout the course, they take their guns off their shoulders and shoot at a target. Now, as odd as that sounded to me, it is a real sport and very challenging. Just try shooting a target after running a sprint. I know enough about both activities to know that it is 
almost impossible. We became friends with the team. They had never seen kids with light-colored hair, which seemed as odd to them as skiing with guns seemed to me. And occasionally, someone would reach out to touch my sister's hair. They only knew a few words, maybe in English, but they were very sweet and excited about everything. So, just a few hours outside of Anchorage, we were entering a big world of Olympics, strange old sports, and new friends from Japan. The captain of the team gave us all team pins. I lost the certificate that the stewardesses gave us for crossing the North Pole, but I still have that pin. We didn't sleep very much on the flight. Somehow, my parents then dragged four exhausted kids through Heathrow. I go through that airport frequently now as an adult, but, but then it seemed much more crowded and rushed. I remember feeling strangely wired but tired and, and very sophisticated, though, to be in London, the exact opposite of the small town I lived in. We camped out on a row of fixed plastic orange chairs. I remember my sisters somehow sleeping for a bit while we waited for our flight to Mallorca. The flight wasn't very long comparatively, but there was enough time for the stewardesses to give us waxy candy in paper cups. We ate them quickly. Flying into Mallorca, we could see the town of Palma with its cathedral in the center of town. I had never seen a building like that. I, I kept imagining what the rooms must have been like on the top floors with all those interesting windows. I was disappointed to later discover that the cathedral is basically one big room. And beautiful as it is, as a kid, I thought it might be better if there were a few rooms at the top. That's a room I would love to spend some time in. Imagine just waking up to the sunshine that comes through those windows. When we got to my grandparents' apartment, my brother and I were shown to a spare room with two small beds. We needed no encouragement to lie down on them and ended up sleeping for 18 hours straight. Less jet-lagged, I suppose, than exhausted. My parents and sisters had beds in another room, and the entire apartment building seemed to be occupied by retired Swedes. Everyone knew each other and in several cases had grown up together. Situated high on a hill overlooking Palma, my brother and I had breakfast together on the balcony. Nothing fancy, I suppose, but for some reason I thought the Earl Grey tea was ambrosia, especially when served with toast, jam, and individually wrapped laughing cow French cheese wedges. When I was a kid, the best cheeses were always individually wrapped. I'm convinced that the success of American cheese and orange gelatinous processed cheese that tastes a little bit like plastic has more to do with the packaging than its low melting point. This piece of cheese is all mine. I unwrapped it myself. Of course, the American processed cheese was not served very often in my house, thankfully, but I did like unwrapping the slices. And the French version tasted good. I remember sitting on the balcony with my tea and watching more, more far walk up the hill with a string bag filled with food from the market. We were above all the clay tile rooftops in the center of town below and the harbor with all sorts of big ships beyond. 
I also remember hearing a schoolyard somewhere nearby with kids playing. It was a far cry from sub-zero winter back home. It was unreal to me, like a movie where everything was designed to look perfectly charming for the camera and everyone, including me, was more elegant than in real life. I have drunk tea ever since, even when I didn't have time to make tea in the morning while going to high school. I would put a pinch of tea in my mouth and chew the leaves on my way to the bus. Not the best way to enjoy Earl Grey, but it seemed practical when I didn't have a balcony overlooking the Mediterranean. There was a castle farther up the hill, which we all explored. It seemed a bit small for a castle to me, somehow not quite what my imagination had cooked up when reading books. We took a drive to the center of the island where we met friends of my grandparents at the top of a steep hill. They had a beautiful home with a swimming pool in front and a nice circular driveway. The husband pulled out his prize to show off a red racing bike. I'm not sure, but I, I want to say it was a Raleigh, but it could have been a lesser known and more exclusive brand of bicycle. He had purchased it in England, then rode it all the way to Mallorca with a couple of boat rides in between. But apparently, when he got to the base of the hill where he lived, he had someone drive him up. And after riding up that hill in a car, it made perfect sense to me why. I got to ride the bike around his driveway, and that was fun. And it continued to fuel my love of all things bicycle. Afterwards, we had lunch at a rustic-looking place nearby where there were herbs and hams hanging from the ceiling. I seem to remember suckling pig was part of what we ate, as well as a rustic chicken dish that I struggled to eat with a knife and fork. Mom had coached us all on table manners most of our lives and reminded us that they mattered a bit more in Europe. I wanted to pick up the drumstick with my hands, but somehow managed to resist that impulse. I've spent some time as an adult on business trips to Europe, and I have been told that I don't eat like an American. Apparently how I use my fork and knife doesn't fit who I actually am. I guess I eat a bit like a Swede. Now at the end of lunch, there was a surprise for all of us. Baked Alaska. Strangely, I never heard of the dish, and I doubt that it is served anywhere or anywhere very often in Alaska. Apparently it was invented in New Orleans by Antoine Alciatore in 1867 to honor the recent acquisition of the Alaska Territory from Russia. It's made with cake and ice cream and covered in meringue that is set on fire before serving. It's very impressive. I think there were cherries on it, too. We loved it, of course. We also loved that it wasn't Alaskan. This may have been one of the first times that I began to realize that people's stories, impressions, or aspirations for Alaska could obscure the truth that we knew as Alaskans. Later in the week, my brother and I looked at each other from our little guest beds and started to talk about what we missed back home. Hamburgers with french fries and pizza topped our lists. Strangely, we probably hadn't eaten either dish for some time back home. Why now, surrounded by baked Alaska and suckling pig, did we miss something we thought nothing of a week ago? Who knows? But when the discussion of what to do for dinner came up, we said pizza. And that's what we had. Now, when I visit the Mediterranean now, 
I mostly eat pizza. Partly because there's some outstanding pizza there, and partly because that's what my spirit expects when I'm in the region. The pizzas we ate that night confused us a little. They didn't taste like the cheesy American pizzas of the 1970s, but they were good. It didn't cure our homesickness, but it was great pizza. One afternoon, we went to the beach. It was too cold to sit around in a bathing suit, but walking barefoot through the sand was okay, except for one thing. An oil tanker had recently spilled some oil nearby, and all over the beach there were little black balls of tar, sometimes hiding in a bit of sand. Stepping on one meant a lot of frenetic scrubbing with soap to get it off. I remember my mother and her mother clearing a little area and sitting while they chatted and watched the sea. And with our visit over, we flew to Geneva, Switzerland to start a family tour of Europe. We had Eurail passes, which allowed us to take any train anywhere just by showing up at a station. And we had a paperback book called Europe on $10 a day that we used to find inexpensive hotels. We started in Geneva because that's where my mother went to school. And Geneva had civilized swans in their parks, a bit different from their wild counterparts back home. And at the front gate of my mother's school, there was this pastry shop. That's, that's really all I remember of her school. And I think it was her favorite part of the campus as well. My strongest memories of Europe were not of the museums, the architecture, or the history on display. It was sweets and trains. We rarely had candy in the house growing up except around holidays. Even soda pop was a rare treat. The only pastries we had in Alaska was a dozen donuts on the weekends sometimes. In Europe, we had chocolate every day. Chocolate that made Hershey's seem flavorless. The hotels always had pastries laid out for breakfast in the morning. And after a few days of politeness, my brother and I started to really load up our plates from the buffets. It was impressive how many chocolate croissants we could finish off. On trains, we were given a private room for six people, like a carriage in a Sherlock Holmes story. At every border, train conductors would briskly knock on the door and let themselves in, asking for passports. English was not as commonly spoken then as it is now, so confusion was easily created, and I felt intimidated when an impatient man in a dark uniform called for passports, please. My mother's French language skills often came in handy. It was fun to hear all the different languages and wonder what they were saying. My sisters decided that they should speak in the same language and spoke gibberish back and forth to each other, impersonating the unique sounds of French, German, Dutch, and Danish. From a distance, they sounded almost like natives. We traveled around Switzerland, through Germany, to Amsterdam, Copenhagen, and even briefly to Sweden. As we walked through streets, looking for the mermaid statue, visiting a museum, or waiting for another train, I remember it being very cold. Now this was surprising to me as it wasn't below zero. It was wet and clammy though. My, my feet were only warm after an hour under the covers in bed. We wore our brightly colored down coats the entire trip. 
They were good coats made by my mother with goose down inside, but I felt a little strange in them because everyone else in Europe in the 1970s wore wool or canvas coats. Bright nylon stood out on the train platform. We didn't fit in, really. When we got back and started to recover from jet lag again, I came home from school on a bright, sunny day. The snow was brilliant white, and I felt warm enough to unzip my coat. Cheered by the warm sun, I came in the door, took off boots and coat, then went to the kitchen looking for a snack. My mother was there and asked about my day. I told her how nice it was outside, how I didn't feel cold at all after two weeks of freezing in Europe, and how I walked home with my coat open. She said, are you crazy? It's 10 below zero outside. You see, Alaska cold is a dry cold. As proud as I am of enduring sub-zero temperatures through my childhood, I must admit that Northern Europe can be impressively miserable. I had adapted to sub-zero, but wet cold, I still can't get used to. When I turned 14, life began to change. In my first year of high school, I started to act in plays and spend more time in the theater department. For some reason, I had always liked speaking in public and even then tended to write speeches in my head that I imagined someday I might have the chance to give. Theater just seemed to be a good place to give speeches in a costume. After three plays in my freshman year, one as a lead, I was feeling a bit cocky, but also wanted to get better at it. There was a two-week summer camp in Sitka, Alaska that was recommended to me, so I talked about it with my parents and we decided I could go. I also decided that I should make some money and, and contribute to the cost. That meant instead of staying at Lake Tyone all summer, I would have to travel back and forth with my father. I got a job at a local Burger King, a job I ended up doing for two years. It was brutal work, unlike anything else I had ever done. My brother and I had become handy with mowing lawns, shoveling walks, and even digging ditches, but Burger King was much harder work. Grease from the fryers filled the air, landed on every surface and all over me. The broiler, where raw burgers on a metal conveyor belt moved through the fire, dominated the kitchen. Meal rushes would last for hours, and when the rush was over, the cleaning was endless, difficult. And since that time, I've been unable to be impatient with any fast food worker. They are working harder than I do. My first position in the kitchen was the broiler. That's where they always put the new kids. I would go to the freezer, get a crate of frozen burgers that looked like solid gray discs. Then I would have to bang the discs on a table until they separated and place them on a conveyor belt. On the other side, sizzling hamburger patties would drop off the belt. My job was then to pick up the patties with tongs, put them on a toasted bun, then place the burger and bun inside a steamer, ready for the next guy to take it out and dress with condiments. The biggest thing I remember from those first couple of days was how slow time was. My first eight hours were the longest eight hours I've known. And with time, I learned how to pour drinks, make french fries and onion rings, and assemble the burgers. I worked the front counter taking orders as well as the drive-through station. 
The best parts of the front positions were air with less grease and the microphones. As we took the orders from customers, we would call it over the microphone so that the kitchen knew immediately what to start working on. Nothing like a live mic to give me joy. On Sundays, I would open the restaurant. One other employee and I usually shared the first shift where we would chop up the tomatoes and lettuce and set up different stations and turn on the cash registers. The manager would usually show up late and very drunk from the night before. He would immediately go into his small office at the back and sleep until noon with his head down on the desk. We didn't mind. Instead, we would set up the schedules for all the employees, assign positions, and open the store. Drunk with power, we would give ourselves the best positions and enjoy a day where everything worked well and no one was yelling at us. We would share mopping and cleaning duties and make sure everyone took their breaks. It was always cleaner than usual at the end of our shift and we always had more receipts since customers didn't have to wait as long. It was a quiet workers' rebellion. Fear and anger are not very effective tools for leadership, but they are frequently used by some. My passed out boss taught us well with his quiet snores. Awake, there was much less teaching and more yelling. If there's nothing left to clean, keep cleaning. When in doubt, mop the floor again. If you're tired and your feet hurt, who cares? Keep working. I picked up more useful notions from those people that I worked with. Be kind to your coworkers because we're in this together. Be nice to customers, even when they're not, and they usually are not. In a rush, there will be too many orders, not enough time. Just keep cool, focus on the task at hand. In the end, you will survive. In the first year, I would dream about endless rushes where I couldn't move fast enough and kept dropping things. I, I never felt rested after a night of flipping burgers, even if it was in my dreams. One lesson stayed with me for 50 years. This is the worst job you will ever have. What a gift. When dealing with a difficult work situation, no matter how demeaning or overwhelming it might be, I can always remember a time when it was far worse. Thanks in part to the Burger King Corporation, my work life has gotten better and better every year. I also have to express my gratitude to Burger King for making it so much easier to become a vegetarian later in life. There are some things that cannot be unseen. When it was time to go home, I walked out the back door to the parking lot. I looked up and saw the snow-capped Chugach Mountains looming over us. And swarming the dumpster were a gang of noisy ravens. Now, a group of raisins is supposed to be called an unkindness, but I think that's a bit misleading a term for such an intelligent and beautiful bird. I may have been standing in a Burger King parking lot wearing a polyester uniform covered in grease, but I was in Alaska. My eight hours done, I was back. I made next to nothing, of course. My first paycheck was $18. I made more after that, but the federal minimum wage at that time was $2.90, so after taxes, it took a lot of hours to make much of anything. 
it felt important to somehow contribute to my arts camp cost. And in the end, there was little to give. The, the big benefit of my working then was to be with my father during the week and to travel back and forth with him on the weekend. It felt grown up. It made Lake Tyone seem special to me. Whenever a weekend ended, we would all take the boat to the Lake Louise Lodge. My father and I would say our goodbyes before making our way up the hill to the truck. We couldn't linger too long as both of us had to go to work the next morning. On Sunday, later in the summer, the weather was awful. Reports on the CB from the other lakes were of six-foot swells, squalls, and driving rain. We kept waiting for the weather to die down, but it persisted all afternoon and into the evening. My father must have had an important case to deal with because at 9 p.m. he said, uh, the weather's getting, getting better, a little better. Let, let, let's make a try. The weather wasn't any better. It was getting dark. Everyone else stayed behind as my father and I zipped up life jackets and raincoats, started up the boat engine, and made our way down the lakes. Now, Lake Tyone was choppy, but not too bad despite the wind and rain. Lake Susitna was more of a steady thumping of waves on the underside of the boat, vibrating up our spines. Faces wet with rain, we seemed to make pretty good time. And before we knew it, we were at the mouth of the Lake Louise Channel. Now at the entrance, the water was calm, and my father steered the serpentine course between sandbars easily and quickly. But then, as Lake Louise came into view, he began to slow down. The entrance looked like nothing we had seen before. Breakers, like you see on an ocean beach, were more than six feet tall, and crashing towards us while the dark storm raged behind them. Lightning crackled and thundered above while the trees near us were bending over in the wind. It wasn't unlike the painting of the sailing ship in a storm that our caretaker gave us. It looked like something that a lawyer and his teenage son should probably not be a part of. Are you ready? My father asked. I tersely and, I thought, manfully said yes, but wasn't convinced even as I said it. I was more afraid of him thinking I was afraid than I was of the storm. Get to the engines, he said. We may hit bottom between the swells. He then pushed the throttle and said, here we go. The engine rumble changed its low pitch to a high scream. The boat lifted till it was on the step and we crossed the threshold to Lake Louise, and the first wave hit us with a crash that sounded like it could have broken the hull in two. Water from that, and the next waves came over the sides, drenching both of us and collecting in the back of the boat where the engine was straining as it churned up sand and water behind us. I pulled the plug so water could escape to the back as we went, and the engine, the waves, and the storm made it impossible to hear anything but the loudest shouts. We didn't say much more than... You okay? Or look out. Just like the dialogue of an action-adventure movie. Not sophisticated writing, probably pointless. But when you are facing anything that much bigger than you are, it's helpful to hear from someone else who's in the same adventure with you. 
I stood at the back of the boat behind my father. Even though the plugs were out, water had come up to my ankles. I could see the sandy bottom of the lake coming up towards us with every wave. The catch was off on the engine, so it could lean forward when it hit the lake floor, and each wave seemed to get larger, and each valley between the waves seemed to get lower. We caught the sand again and again, slowing us down each time. I was terrified. We both held on to whatever was near and bent our knees as the boat jumped up and down in the water. I prayed that the engine would hold, that we wouldn't get stuck on the bottom, that we wouldn't die here. And then I stood next to my father as we faced the waves. We were both strong, no matter what we might feel inside. And around the time I thought we couldn't go any further, the waves diminished. We gained speed and made our way down the lake. The rest of the trip was choppy, but nowhere near as bad as the entrance. We stood together quietly as we pulled up to the boat landing. Now, at this point, the lake seemed almost calm. That made sense as the wind was blowing straight north towards the channel, allowing wind to create all sorts of problems where we were before. It felt strange as we docked and grabbed our things. We sent a message by CB radio to let everyone know we were okay. Then we got into the Dodge to make our way home. By this time, it was 10 or 11 o'clock and the road was only visible in the pool of our headlights. On the gravel road, it was noisy as the truck jumped and jostled around. Any talking would have to be done at a yell for us to be heard still, but neither of us were eager to talk. I think I was still feeling the motion of those breakers and hearing the whine of the outboard motor as we climbed another swell. In a moment, the 20 miles of gravel was behind us and we started towards the mountains on the paved Glen Highway. My father hunched over the steering wheel, as always, focused intently on the dark road ahead. As always with the Dodge, he was constantly swinging the wheel back and forth to keep a straight line. The cab was noisy with the sound of tires on the road, the engine and the wind finding cracks in the door frame to whistle through. Even with that noise, it felt quiet. The instrument panel warmly illuminated our faces with ember light. And in a trance, I watched the yellow lines on the pavement outside move and turn with curves in the road. We were both wet, but not soaking anymore. The night air, especially in the mountains, felt cold. I huddled close to the dashboard where most of the heat seemed to be. It wasn't very warm, but it was enough. There were no lights on at Gunside Mountain Lodge, which was a disappointment. I wasn't up to pinball, but something warm and greasy would have been welcome. Past Gunsight, the mountains began to rise in earnest as the Glen Highway quickly went to 3,000 feet. The peaks of the Chugach loomed darkly over us like sentries as we drove back and forth on the curvy road. My father was starting to feel tired, so he rolled down his window for fresh air. It was very cold air, which is perfect for keeping a driver alert, but all I wanted to do was roll up his window 
and get warm again. A sound like some sort of electrical spark or short was getting louder and louder as we drove. To me, it sounded almost like a Tesla coil. How, how could that be a good thing in an old truck? I, I couldn't see any sparks, though. Maybe it was something in the engine compartment. Uh, any idea I came up with didn't make me feel any better. My father didn't say anything about it as he focused on the road ahead of him, so I didn't say anything either. And halfway through the mountains, he pulled over to a place we had gone by many times before but never entered. The lights were on, and a few trucks were parked out in front. There was just enough room for the parking lot, the lodge, and a couple of gas pumps before the cliff that went straight down to the valley below. Inside, there was coffee and cheeseburgers. I thought it was a really nice place. When we climbed back into the truck, we noticed that there was an old piece of packing tape on the edge of the windshield that was loose on one end. We realized that the electric spark sound was the tape vibrating on the windshield. Laughing with relief, Dad pulled the tape off, and we both confessed it had worried us for miles. We got in and closed the doors. This is our midnight crossing, he said. Driving away from the roadhouse with tape removed, everything became easy. There was a little more driving through the mountains, but then it was an easy downhill as we passed the Matanuska glacial field. The massive river of snow and ice revealed a bit of the rising sun reflected on its surface. Then we were in Matanuska and 45 minutes from home. We both crashed in our beds. Dad woke up a few hours later to go to work and I slept until my afternoon shift at Burger King. From time to time, my father still asks me, remember the midnight crossing? I can't forget. I probably haven't told him enough how important it was to me, how standing in the boat with him as we faced the impossible was the moment when I first felt like a man. Together, we faced the elements and our fears and came out on the other side. And on the other side, I belonged in Alaska. <laughs>